0: Thank you for listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. We hope you'll enjoy this sermon from the series Authentic, a study on the book of James. Father, we're here to honor your Son. He is exalted. He is lifted high. He has died for our sins. He has risen again. And so we exalt him. He is pure. He is brighter than all the heavenly angels. He is greater than Moses. He is greater than any high priest. He is greater than all. He is King of King and Lord of Lords. And so we're here to worship him, to exalt him. Uh, Lord, I, I just preach this fourth and final service for the day. I just, I just pray for physical strength. Um, just give me strength to, to proclaim it as if it was the first time and in fervor, because it's a great passage of scripture, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit because I am weak and broken and I am a sinful man. Uh, and I have nothing in myself that would change men or women's hearts. I have nothing in myself that, that can, can mold the heart and, and reach the, the mind. But you do, Lord. And so I pray that through me, through your servant, through just a broken man, that you would proclaim truth and excellence and that the, the Church of Christ would be built and equipped for the work of ministry. Uh, And we'll just leave our souls being filled and our hearts delighting in you. It's in Christ's name for his reputation, I pray. Amen. Thanks. You guys can have a seat. And turn for the last time, at least for a while, to the book of James. Um, I know you're sad. You're crying about it. I know all of you, right? I just heard, oh, but now we're going to finish up this great little book today. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat under you. You open a few pages of the table of contents. James is one of the last books. I think it's on page like 655 in that little Bible there. Um, so you can follow along or you can watch the slides. Um, and next week, we'll be back in the Old Testament in the book of You're Gonna Have to Come to Find Out. ha ha, ha. all right, okay, so how you like that? All right. <laughs> There's one of 39. You got one in 39 chance to guess it, right? Okay, there you go. All right, James chapter five. This has been a great little book. I'll tell you, I think about it this week and it, I, I, I kind of equate it to like a good workout where you get your, your tail kicked a little bit, but it feels good, all right? That's, that's kind of this, this book. This last three months has been like a good workout. We've got our, our tail kicked a little bit, but it's been a good tail kicking, all right? And we saw that James, the brother of Jesus, has been the one who's doing the kicking, Right, he is the half brother of Jesus, same mother, Mary, different father. Jesus didn't have an earthly father. James did. His name was Joseph. He was a carpenter. Um, Jesus' stepdad, but he was the brother of Jesus, and he thought his brother was wacko. He thought he was it was a nutcase. He was embarrassed by him until the resurrection, and everything changed. And then he realizes my brother is the son of God. My brother. Is the Messiah. And he becomes a worshiper and a follower of his, of his ass brother. And he becomes the head of the church in Jerusalem, the early church where, where the headquarters of Christianity was in Jerusalem. And he's the head guy. He's the lead dude, right? And he's writing this letter. The book of James, as we've seen, is the first chronological book in the New Testament, all right? Before Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Romans. It's the first book in the New Testament, chronologically. And he's writing to the church. The church has been scattered. Boom, persecution comes. And it's scattered all over Palestine. And people are losing their jobs and people are losing their homes and people are losing their farms. And they're cut off from their family because of their faith in Jesus. And he writes this letter to encourage them to to stand fast and to show them ultimately what true, authentic, genuine faith looks like. It's just a book of, this is authentic faith. This is the real deal. This is it. Right, and so that's where we've been for the last couple months. And, and Pastor James, as he closes it out, I think we really see his passion as he closes out this book today. You can see his heart. I, I know he's been a close talker at times. He's been in our face a little bit. But this guy was a great dude. He loved the church. And he was loved by the church. His nickname was not James the Fiery Preacher. His nickname in the early church was James the Just. Even when he was being killed for his faith, they, remember, they threw him off the temple, and that didn't kill him. So they stoned him. He's on the ground, all broken and beaten. They go up to stone him. And even at the end, what is he saying? He's saying the exact same thing his brother said Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. He's a great man. And his passion comes through as he closes out this book. And, and remember, he's writing to a bunch of churches, not just one church, all these little churches all over in the church in Tyre and the church in Phoenicia and the church in Samaria and the church in Antioch, all these churches that have been forced out, and he's trying to encourage them. And as he closes, I think he gives these last calls to action for a group of people who are trying to live and struggle and do life together. And as I'm reading it this week, I'm just I'm, my heart. As the pastor of this church or one of the pastors, this is is what I want for us. These these last calls to action by James, I want it to be true of CBC, y'all. I I want, as we live together and we do life together and we're a community of faith together, we're just one of many local churches in this town. As we do those things together, I want these things to be true of us. So let me read our text in its entirety, and then we'll come back and kind of unpack it, right? There's four things we're going to see in it. Verse 12. Your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So he starts off in verse 12, and he says, but above all, and this is his way of saying, I'm closing out the letter. This is not the highest thing, and he's not saying above all, the most important thing, the idea is, okay, I'm, I'm closing this deal out. So above all, brothers, don't swear. He's not talking about cussing. I know Southerners, you're thinking he's talking cussing. He's not talking cussing. He's not saying go cuss, but he is not talking about cussing. He's saying, don't swear either by heaven or earth or by any other oath. He's talking contextually about oaths. Don't make oaths. Now, oaths are not big in our culture, not, unless you're like really special. Oaths are not something that we go about making oaths all the time. But in that culture, they were huge. If you wanted to end the debate, what did you do? You made an oath. If everyone was doubting you, yeah, I don't believe you. It's kind of the equivalent of, I double-dogged, it. I triple-dogged, it. oh, triple, that's the, the end of the argument, all right? That was what an oath was. In fact, we have an example of an exodus. There's an example of an oath. A guy leaves town and lets his his buddy borrow his donkey when he's out of town. And a donkey dies when he comes back in town. If he says, you killed my donkey, he says, I swear I did not kill your donkey. He makes an oath and that's the final deal. Then he has to believe him because he made an oath. It's the, it's the way to end the argument. When God says in, in, in Hebrews 6 that when he wanted to just solidify everything, he swore by himself to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, that he would bless him. He can't swear by anything higher, so he swears by himself. He makes an oath by himself to say, this is the truth. So it's very cultural, okay, swearing oaths, And the problem was the Jews in that day, they had all these little rules about the oath. So if you said, I swear by Jerusalem, You had to do what you said. But if you said, I swear, towards Jerusalem, it was like, ha, 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 trick, trick, trick. I got my fingers crossed. And they had all these little rules that this is the kind of oath you have to keep, and this is the kind of oath you don't have to keep. And there was all these little meticulous things, and so you didn't have to keep your word. And so when the Lord Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says the exact same thing, James is just quoting his brother here. He says, don't use oaths. It's not that he's anti-oath. It's not that some Christians, well, I don't go to the courthouse because God says don't do oaths, and I, I don't have a wedding vows because I shouldn't make oaths. That's not the heart. The heart is this. When you speak, Christian, you should just speak the truth. When you say you're going to do something, that should be enough. What does he say? When you say yes, let it be yes. When you say no, let it be no. There's no other, you don't need to have an oath because you speak truth. It's just the simplistic simplistic truth. And that's the first thing as we live together and strive together and he he closes and says, as you guys are living together, just speak the truth. Be honest. There's no need to, there's no, well, it depends on what the word is means. No, no. It's, It's just, is, is, is. Speak the truth. Nothing destroys a community of faith. Nothing destroys a family. Nothing destroys a workplace more than people who are talking about people rather than to people who are deceitful. And the idea as a Christian is there's, you shouldn't be compartmentalizing the way you talk. This is the way we talk at church, thee, thou, bless you, blah, blah, blah. And over here, we talk a completely different way. No, just straightforward. And that covers all the things like gossip and slander and, and speaking about people rather than to people. And we've looked at that in chapter three, right? But the re- And the reason being, if you could get to James and say, why is this so important? Why do you... Remember, Jesus himself said this, and so does James. Two times this is in the Bible. If something is repeated two times, it's important. Why is it so important, James, that the church is speaking truth? And he would say, because my brother said he was the truth, the life. Our God is the God of truth. He doesn't say, I love you. I'm for you. I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. Oh, but, but now, oh, Wait. But that was before you did that. No, 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 I'm out now. I don't love you anymore. I'm not. No, he is a God who speaks truth and he never goes back in his word. And so his people should be honest. And I know some of you are thinking, aha, uh-huh, good, I'm gonna go tell my mother-in-law then what I think about it because pastor said, all right? And oh yeah, my boss, I'm gonna tell him. My pastor said I can tell you I hate my job, boss. There you go. It's not the heart of it. Take the other scripture into account here. Let your speech be with grace seasoned as with salt, Right? Like like apples and silver is a, is a fitting word, Proverbs says. But the, the, the point is, just be dependent. When you say you're going to do something, do it. Mean what you say, say what you mean. So, and don't say it. If, don't tell people, I'll be praying for you. Because they're counting on that. Aren't they? They're counting on that. It's just not some nice Southern thing to say. Either do it or don't, but don't say it. Right? I'll watch your kids sometime, that'd be great. All right, and how about next Friday? Ooh. I mean, I mean, just mean what you say. Say what you mean or don't say it. That's the point. And none of this half-truth stuff. I know how we get. This is, for those who are really, truly spiritual, they know that today, and you're really nerdy if you know this too, like myself, today is, is Star Wars Day, believe it or not. May the 4th be with you, okay, right? But, so, in honor of the fourth, the 4th of May, I'm gonna, a Star Wars illustration. But here's the idea. Most of you know, because you were born like I do and you watched the greatest movies ever, Star Wars, that Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's dad. If you didn't know it, you should have watched it by now anyway. It came out in the 80s, okay? <laughs> but why is it that Luke Skywalker does not know that, that Darth is his dad? Because everyone lies to him. Obi-Wan Kenobi is a liar. He's a liar. He says, what happened to my dad? Your dad was killed by Darth Vader. Why doesn't he just say, your dad is Darth Vader? Because he's a liar. And then he finds out, he's like, What you, Obi-Wan, you didn't tell me. Well, from a certain point of view, that was true, Luke Skywalker. No, no. Tell me the truth. And that's the heart here. Some of you, well, you didn't ask me, so I didn't tell you that this, we were under budget. No, speak the truth. No Jedi speak. No half-truths. No what's is mean. No. Honesty. You want to destroy community? Be deceitful. Teenagers, if you're in here, well, you didn't ask me if I went there. No, no. Well, was so-and-so there? Well, yeah. Why were you hanging out with him? I told you you weren't supposed to be. Well, you never said I couldn't hang out with him at the mall. You said I couldn't hang out with him at the school. No. Truth. Honesty. Right? Nothing destroys trust more than than dishonesty. And so he he lands, make your yes, yes, and your no, no, so you don't fall under condemnation. It's a big deal because Christ was truth and his people should be true. Right? He continues. Verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. And these are two polar opposites, aren't they? Suffering and cheerful. And the reality is this. In any given community of faith, any given church, both of these are reality right now. Last Saturday, two people in this church got married. Three people in this church got married. They were cheerful. unless they had really bad marriage counseling. They were cheerful. The same exact week, one of our members lost her mama one suffering last week someone got a promotion and a raise in this church last week someone still didn't have a job in this church that's the reality of life and what james says to these people who are mostly suffering is wherever you're at on that ebb and flow are you suffering are you cheerful wherever you're at on that spectrum the response is the same ultimately what is it it's worship It's worship. Are you suffering? What do you do? Pray. Are you cheerful? Sing. Worship. Wherever you're on the spectrum. Because, y'all, Satan's plan is very simple. Not profound, but simple. His, His desire is for you to simply forget Christ, to ignore Christ, to put him out of your mind and think about how cheerful I am. Or how, how the struggle is, but to forget about him. That's the tendency. And especially when things are dark, right? If you're in that hard season and you're dark, what's the tendency when you are suffering? To, to complain? To maybe run away from God? Maybe get mad at God? Maybe try to fix it on your own and take matters in your own hand? He says, No, no. If you are suffering, let him pray. Why? Because you have a father and you have to see prayer in the context of a father-son relationship, father-daughter relationship, a good father, because that's what Jesus points to. You have a father in heaven. I am a lousy dad often, but if my kids are struggling and suffering, what do I want? I want, to, I want to take them up in my lap and ask them what's going on and talk to them and say, it's going to be okay. That's what I want to do. And I'm a sinful, broken dad. What does a perfect father in heaven want when you are struggling and you're suffering and you are lonely and you are depressed? What does he want? He wants you to jump up in his lap and cuddle up next to him and tell him and cast all your cares on him. And he wants to embrace you and hide you under the shadow of his wings. That's the heart of the father. He says, so if you're on that ebb, you worship, you Pray. And I, I can't help but think that, that James has in mind his big brother at this point, the Lord Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane. No one was, was suffering like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's, sweating so, he swear, he's suffering so intensely that the capillaries under his skin are bursting so that he's sweating blood. Why? Because he is looking at becoming sin for us. The perfect holy lamb of God is going to be sin. He is going to be rejected by his father. He is going to tone for sins. He's going to have the wrath of his father poured out on him. And he is staring that right in the eye. And it's such a suffering intensity that he is sweating blood and he prays. And he's praised three times the exact same prayer. You know what he asked for? Father, take this away. Father, take this away. Father, take this away. I think that's so telling and encouraging for us because there's a sense sometimes in the church when we are struggling and suffering, we just have to suck it up and drive on and that's just the way it is. And it is okay, church, when you are struggling and suffering to ask your father, Father, please take this away. Make this go away, Father. Please take this away. This is hard. This is hard. Please take it away. The Lord Jesus did it. It's okay for us to say, Lord, this cancer is awful. This is a hard season in my marriage. It's okay to pray those things. But in the end, where do we land? The same place he landed, but not my will, but yours. That's where we land. We worship. If you're suffering, you worship through prayer. If you're cheerful, what do you do? You sing. And this word, this is, this is New Testament validation for guitars in church. The, the Greek word literally means to pray, play with stringed instruments. So there you go, there it is, okay? <laughs> But he says, if, you are, if you're cheerful, sing. And not sing Lady Gaga or something just random, but it's sing praise and it's in continual tense. So you keep singing. Let him keep singing. Let him keep singing. Christians are a singing people. Ours is a singing faith. I told you before, I'm man enough to admit it. I like once in a while a good musical, right? A little Jean Valjean, right? A little Hills Are Alive with the Sound of Music. All right, little, little, if I were a rich man, you know, da da da, da right? And, and th- really, what, the thing, here's what a musical is. A musical is kind of weird because it's just these guys, they're just acting and they're talking like normal and you're thinking it's normal. And all of a sudden they just bust out. They're like, when you're a jet, you're a jet. I mean, they just start going, right? <laughs> all right, They get the, you know, it, it's kind of this normal life and then they're singing. But you know what? That is how the Christian life should be. That you're just living life, and then because because you have a great God, that you are cheerful, you just, you sing. You bust out in the song because we we are singing people, right? We sing. Why do we sing? David, when he brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, it says, "...they sang loudly to raise the sounds of joy." Right? To, to, to express joy. And we ultimately sing. You know why ultimately we sing? We sing because we have a singing God. Jesus sang. Do you know the Father? It says in Zephaniah 3:17 that he will exult over his people, he will rejoice with loud singing over them. And you think we're loud? How about when God starts busting out, singing over his people? Because no one is as joyful as God. He is is infinitely joyful. The founder sings. And so he has created song. He's appointed for song to be a way in which we release our delight in him. And so Christians sing. That's why we do it. Because we have a singing savior. And I know this is where men, this is where I keep coming back to this because y'all are the worst, right? Not the worst singers. You are bad, but you're not. I mean, you, there's this sense where men don't sing. Let the women sing. Look, the most manly, tough, rough men in the Bible sang. David was a warrior. He was an expert with weapons. He cut people's heads off and he sang, okay? You're not that manly, all right? I can tell you. And the epitome of manliness, the, the perfect man, was the Lord Jesus. 100% man, 100% God. And he sang, and he still does. So we sing, and we don't lip sync. We sing, and we raise the sounds of joy. That's what we do. And he says, wherever you're at on the spectrum, are you struggling? You worship. Are you cheerful? You worship. And as we go through those things together, we weep with those who weep, we, we rejoice with those who rejoice. That's how we live. We, the focus, wherever we're at, is still on worship. We do that together as a body, right? We do those things. We are honest with each other and we worship. That's where we go. He continues and he builds on this idea of suffering. And, and let me say, 14 through 16 is probably one of the more debated texts in this book, certainly in the New Testament. And I'm going to unpack it a little bit and ca- kind of make some observations, and I'll tell you where I land. I actually changed my position on it this week. Um, so let me read the entirety and then we'll come back. It says If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So let me just make some observations, some big picture observations, and I'll kind of unpack it you know, from a 35,000 feet level of the principle here. Number one, he says, if anyone is among you sick, he's talking to the church here. Okay, this is not a broad stroke application. This is the community of faith. So whatever he's talking about, he's talking about to the Christians that he's, that he's speaking to, okay? It's not just a blanket statement. So anyone among you sick? It, James does not seem to think that sickness is unusual. And I know in some circles, they will say, well, healing is guaranteed in the atonement because by his wounds you are healed. No, healing is guaranteed in the resurrection. But not, not, not now. Paul was sick at points in his life. He asked three times to, be, to have this, this thorn in the flesh removed, and God said no. His buddy, Trophimus, was so sick, he had to leave him in a city and say, okay, I'm leaving him. He's so sick, I had to leave him there. Well, why didn't he just heal him? He's guaranteed healing, right? No, he's not. Right? Timothy constantly had stomach issues, so much that Paul said, you need to mix some wine with your water so that you don't get sick so much. Right? So, so he, sickness seems to be something that, that normally happens, And this case of sickness seems to be extreme because he says, let him call for the elders of the church. He's so sick, he can't go to the elders. They have to come to him. So it's possible this guy's bedridden or this gal, all right? And and just as a side note, who is the one doing the calling? The sick person. Because the elders may not even know, all right? And so just as an application, if there's someone here that needs prayer that is sick, you need to let us know. That's that's one way we have the connect cards, we have phone, because we will come and we will pray and we will do this very thing, but we don't know if you don't tell us. And and, and he says it's on the person to call the elders. So call, and we've done this several times, and we will come. And the focus is, he says, you will pray over them. You pray anointing with oil, and anointing is a participle that, that... that modifies the main verb, which is pray. The focus is praying over him. So this is not some big healing service. This is private at his home, at her home, where they are praying and anointing with oil. What's the oil for? Two different camps. One says that it's kind of like medicine. You rub it on him, it makes him feel good, just like the Good Samaritan. Others, and this is where I would land, would see it as symbolic, symbolic symbolizing the Holy Spirit, symbolizing, just like in the Old Testament where they would pour oil on the high priest, or they would pour oil on on the king to set that person apart. It's as if the elders are saying, this guy, Lord, we, we are setting him apart and we are asking you to do something special here and heal him, so we're gonna anoint him and we are gonna pray. I think that's the idea there, that they are setting him apart to pray. And if he's committed sins, it says, he will be forgiven. What's that about? Sometimes sickness is because of sin. Not always, notice it says if, that's a condition. Not all sickness is because of sin. Don't walk around saying he's got the flu. That's because he's a punk. No, don't do that, all right? That's, that's, you don't know, and it's not your job to say, oh, he's sick. That's what Job's buddies did, and when God showed up, he was hot. He said, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Sometimes you get a cold because we live in a fallen world. But sometimes sickness is because God is disciplining that person. And he says, if that's the case, this person confesses his sins to one another. They pray for one another that they may be healed. So if that is the case, if there's been sin and it's the reason there's sickness, then that person will be forgiven because he confesses. But don't just don't broad stroke. Yeah, all sickness is because this guy's a jerk. No, that's not true. And I would argue probably most sickness is not right so that's the guts of the passage now here's here's what the rub is So here's what some people say and here's what some people say here I'll tell you where I am some people say he's talking about spiritual healing here so if someone's weary they're down they're depressed you call the elders they lay hands on them and they'll be uplifted and they'll be they'll be saved and the word saved could be talking about physical healing or it could be talking about spiritual healing because it's used both ways in the new testament it's used that way in the gospels it's used that way here but here's where i land here i, I tend to take, this is what I've changed. I tend to take this passage at face value, right? What happens when usually guys like me who are real conservative scholars, not really a scholar, but conservatives, as I see this passage and I try to explain away why God doesn't heal people anymore. Because I see so many wackos on TV that are doing all this crazy stuff and I let the pendulum swing all the way over here. Well, God doesn't do that stuff anymore. And my question is, why doesn't he? Is he not the same? Is this not the same God who called down fire on Elijah's uh, altar? Is this not the God who, who rescued Noah and the ark? Is this not the same God who made a 100-year-old man have a, have a child? Is this not the same God who made a virgin conceive? Is this not the same God who raised Lazarus from the dead? Is this not the same God? Is he not the same yesterday, today, and forever? Is he still omnipresent? Is he still omnipotent? Is he still omniscient? I think he is. So why do we as Christians always come to a passage and say, it doesn't really mean that? It can't mean that because God doesn't do that kind of thing. I think he does. He does. Now, I'm not saying everyone is guaranteed to be healed. That's not what I'm saying. Take into account all the rest of scripture. We ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If you ask anything in his name, which means in his will, he hears us. But I think to take the text at face value, sometimes God heals. Now, maybe he uses a doctor, maybe he uses medicine, but sometimes cancer goes away. And that's the way it is. And it's always God because he is the healer. And I think as a church, we should start praying big prayers because we have a big God. And stop saying that was the God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament doesn't really care about anything except for traveling mercies. That's what he cares about now. <laughs> really? That's the biggest thing you pray for is traveling mercies? mean, nothing wrong with it. And, no, and everyone knows that Aunt Hilda's big toe needs to be healed. That's great too. But really, that's all our God is big enough for nowadays? Come on. And I think the point of the passage is that James says, the church needs to pray. I, the church needs to pray for one another. The church needs to pray for big things. And we need to expect that a big, mighty, great God does great things. Does he always do them? Does he always heal? No. He doesn't always heal because he doesn't see fit. A great example could be a Johnny Erickson Tata, a paraplegic. She, they applied this passage. They anointed her with oil. The elders came. They prayed and God did not see fit to, to cure her of her paraplegia. But she will be one day, she'll be resurrected and have a new body. And just in case you were wondering, 100% of the people that Jesus healed eventually died. All right, Just, just a stat there for you. But God still answers the prayer of his saints and that's where he goes next, what does he say? I love this verse, it's a famous verse. The prayer of a righteous person has what? Great power. Do you believe that church? I don't know if we do sometimes. Great power. And you know who understood that? It was the brother of the Lord Jesus. You know what church history says about him? Eusebius, the historian, says that James's knees grew hard like a camel's because of his constant worship of God, kneeling and asking forgiveness for his people. Here's a guy who says, church, pray, and he, he practiced it. His knees were scarred up because he prayed so much. That's this guy. And I know it's real easy to say, yeah, but that's the brother of Jesus. He's like a super Christian. He's a mega Christian. He's the big pastor and all those things. He grew up with the Lord Jesus. Yeah, that's him. I'm just a normal 18-year-old dude. I'm just a normal, I'm just a, a stay-at-home mom. I'm just a guy that works at go. I'm a nobody. I've been saved for a year and a half. I don't even know where half the books of the Bible are. I, I, that's, that's different. He says, oh, no, 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 it's not. And look what he says next. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He says, Elijah was just like y'all. He just, he, flesh and bones. He liked the layer leather and had pet birds, but he was just like y'all. And he prayed fervently. And literally the Greek text says he prayed with prayer. That's what it says. He just prayed with prayer that it wouldn't rain. And it didn't rain for 42 months. Three and a half years. Right? And then he prayed again, and it would rain, and it rained. He struggled just like you do. He was depressed just like you. He, he wanted to quit just like you. He had hard times. He was lonely. He was hungry just like you. He was loved by his Father just like you. He was saved by grace just like you, and he prayed with prayer, and God moved and stopped the rain. And you know why God stopped the rain? Here's, let me let me lay you in on the secret of Elijah's prayer life. It wasn't that he stood up, he laid down, he had one eye open, one closed. Nothing to do with that. He didn't pray thou and thee and do and die. He didn't do any of that stuff. You know what he prayed? Very simply, he just prayed God's word. God said in Deuteronomy 28, if Israel is wicked, I'm going to stop the rain. Bad King Ahab comes along. Elijah says, we're wicked, God. Stop the rain. God says, okay, I'm going to do what I said. Boom. Three and a half years later, God shows up and says, I'm going to make it rain, Elijah go back to Abraham. He goes back and he prays seven times. God, you said you were going to make it rain. Make it rain. Boom. God makes it rain. All he does is takes God's promises which he gave him and he shoots them back up to him. God, you said this and God answers. That That it was the secret to his prayers. He just prayed God's promises and God mightily worked. He mightily worked. And I've, as I was read, I've read this text a million times, y'all. I have it memorized and I was reading it. And I'll be honest with you, I was convicted this week of how junky at times my prayer life is. How often I am doing the work of the Lord apart from the power of the Lord. More times than I would like to admit. And so I just this week, I didn't, you know, cut out a closet in my house and put a pillow in and start praying 18 hours a day. But here's what I did, and and this might work for you, may not, but all I did was I started taking those down times in my in my day when I'm doing nothing, and I just started filling that with prayer. So instead of listening to talk radio and getting mad at everybody while I'm driving home, I turn off the radio and I just spend it in prayer. I'm walking Milton the sanctifying dog and I'm praying for my own sanctification I just I'm lying on the couch lying in the bed in the morning just not wanting to get up and I got four minutes and I just spend 60 seconds just in praying for my day and I and it was I haven't had some profound 20-hour prayer time but what I found is when I'm just taking those little seasons of prayer throughout the day it happens more often it just does it is a little bit of a discipline. I get that. That's why it's called a church a, a, that's why it's called a discipline, a spiritual discipline. But I found that I just have been praying more. And I'm telling you, and I'm more sensitive to what God is doing. I, I'm sensitive to my own heart, my own sin. I'm sensitive of like, well, I'm about to be a, a jerk. I need to Well, I'm just telling you. Just from those little seasons of prayer. Maybe that'll work for you. Maybe you need to get up 30 minutes early and kind of get in your journal. I, I don't know. But I know this, if we are a church that's gonna see the power of God, it's not gonna be because we just do things the same old way. We have to, we, we're gonna be people who pray. We're gonna be people who pray. There's great power in prayer. And if you're like, oh, I don't know what to pray, but I'm struggling with sin. Just pray some of these great promises. You got to struggles with sin. This is the issue you've been dealing with. 1 Corinthians says, I, I will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Pray that back to God. God, you promised me you won't allow me to be tempted beyond what I'm able. With the temptation, you'll provide a way of escape. Show me the way of escape. Maybe you're feeling lonely, maybe you're down, maybe you're depressed, maybe you don't know what's going on. You just say, Lord, you said you'd never leave me forsake you. I take you at your word. Show me, comfort me, be, just bring me in and, and make me know that you love me. You're feeling guilty over sin, it is something you'd done 20 years ago, something you did last week. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us. Claim that promise. Have him remove that guilt. You don't need to be guilty. If you put your faith in Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Stop letting the enemy tell you otherwise. Right? And you're praying the promises. You're weak. I feel like quitting. I feel like quitting in my marriage. I'm quitting in my kids, quitting on my job. I can't do one more day. Just go to Apostle Paul. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made powerful in weakness. These are great promises. Just send them back up. And see what God will do in your life and in your heart. That's that's what we do as we live life together, right? So we're honest and we're worship focused and we're praying and expecting God to do things. And then one more thing as he closes, and I love this last two verses. He says, my brothers, if any of you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering way, wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Don't you love James, the brother of Christ? Where is his heart at the end of this book? For the wandering person, where did he get such a heart? I wonder. Maybe it was a brother who said, when one sheep leaves, I will go get that sheep and I will leave 99 behind. When one coin is lost, I'm going to knock the whole house down until I find the one coin. And when I find it, I'm going to have a party and I'm going to celebrate. Who said that? The Lord Jesus, his brother. And where does he get the heart? Brothers, if anyone wanders, if they're wandering theologically, if they start asking questions that are they're dangerous, well, is Jesus really the only way to heaven? Is the Bible really true? I heard my professor say this. You go get them. You say, no, no, this is true. If they're wandering morally, well, I'm gonna go live with my girlfriend because it's cheaper or, you know, this just feels good and I know it's not right, but I'm just gonna do it. You go get them. If they're relationally kind of checking out, they haven't showed up at community group in six weeks, they haven't been at church in, in 10 weeks, they haven't returned your calls you, you call them, you go get them. I mean, if there's someone coming to your mind right now that you're like, I, yeah, I needed to call that, I needed to email, I need, you need to do it. That's the spirit of Christ saying, yes, you need to go get them. What does the church do? We pursue one another. Just like the Lord Jesus pursued you. You pursue. That's, what he's, that's where he's at. The last thing he's thinking about is go get them. And you know what? Sometimes that's hard and it's inconvenient and it's not easy. And you don't know how they're gonna respond. I'll be honest, sometimes when Milton the Sanctifier gets out, my wife's like, let him go, All right? And I'm like, oh, I don't want him. I want to let him go. I want to let him go, but then I'm like, no, I got to go get him. Got to get the shoes on, got to get off the couch, got to get in the car. Go get the daggum dog. <laughs> right? And you know what? But that's the idea. Go church and get him. Because that's what Jesus did for you when you're wandering. And that's part of doing life together. Church, there is a sense in which we are our brother's keeper. There is a sense. And the implication, don't miss it, is that you are known by somebody and you know somebody, right? I know as we grow, I mean, back in the day when we were 20 people in Johnny Harris, when one person was missing, we were like, where's John? I haven't seen John. You know, where's John? Now it's like, I, I get it, we're a thousand folks and, and it's real simple. But the church, the New Testament church knows nothing of a person who comes in the door and just leaves and, and just, that's it. And if that's, if that's you at this church, let me just be as, as, as gentle but as firm as possible. This is not the place for that. This is not a place where you just come, watch, that was nice, did my church thing and leave. This is, we don't have enough chairs for that, to be honest with you. The church is a, p- a group of people who, who, not you can't know everybody. I don't know even like 12 people in this church anymore. I mean, okay, but you can't know everybody, but you can know someone. And that maybe that's in a community group. Maybe that's on a service team. Maybe that's just grabbing coffee with another Christian every other week, whatever it is, where you are known and can know the person. And if they see you wandering, because look, we are all prone to wander. I read a, a story just yesterday, this great pastor in Texas, I mean, in Florida, 20,000 person church. Boom, in Calvary Chapel Church in Fort Lauderdale. This guy was a great preacher. He's a godly man. He had an affair. He's done. Right? Two teenagers and a wife. Prone to wander. We go get each other because we love each other. And that is hard and it sometimes is messy. Look, church is messy. And I happen to believe, personally, when you see a clean church, you see a dead church because there's no conversion taking place and no one is being honest and open with each other because people are messy. Just get married, single people, you'll realize what I'm talking about. (laughs) All right? And I'm not talking about clothes on the floor. But that's that's why we need a savior. That's why we need a savior. And churches that have messiness and they're a little rough around the edges, there's some sanctifying going on, but that is a good thing. All right? And that's what we want. Go get him because you could be the agent of life that God uses to bring him back. What does he say? If you do it, you, you, you save a sinner from, his, from death. If he wasn't truly a Christian, maybe he wasn't. You bring him back and he becomes a Christian, you have saved his soul from hell. You have rescued him from the, from the flames, so to speak, because you brought him back. And he becomes a Christian. Or if he was already a Christian, you help him escape discipline that might have come or or wrecking his life or wrecking his marriage or wrecking his future. You cover a multitude of sins because you were obedient. So if you're thinking, I need to email that person, you do, not during church, but you do. I need to call that person. You do need to do it. Yes, do it today. And if they don't answer, go knock on their door. Take them a Sara Lee pie. And say, I had a pie for you. Or do something. But go get them. Right? That's what people who love each other do. That's what we do. Because we have a Savior who loved us. And he went after us. And he died for us. Right? That's what we do. That's, that's where James's heart is. Yo, that's my heart for this church. We are not a perfect church. We, I wouldn't even say we're a good church. People, when you go to come to my church, my church is great. Please don't tell them this church is great. It's not great. We're just a bunch of sinners who have a great savior. That's all we are. Like a group of sinful people with a great God. That is it. And so don't give false advertising. You want to come to a sinful place? Come to CBC. (laughs) Uh, We got sin on spades. But we have a savior who died for our sins and rose again. And we're just worshiping him together. And we're trying to live our lives for him together by the power of his spirit. That's what we are. And by God's grace, we'll continue as we continue to be honest with each other as we continue to worship wherever we're at as we continue to pray and as we continue as we continue to go after each other so what we're going to do we're going to we're going to apply the text today we're going to have a time of prayer Right there in your seat. Maybe you have to pray for that wandering brother or sister. Maybe you have to pray for your own struggles. Whatever it is, pray, team, you guys come on up and you're going to lead us. They're going to just sing for a little bit. You guys stay in your seats and just spend a season of prayer together as a church praying. And then you know what he says? If you're cheerful, do what? Sing. So we're going to sing. No lip syncing allowed, man. All right? And here's what I want to do, y'all. I want to raise the sounds of joy in South Gardens. Let's raise the sounds of joy. Let's let the kids. We usually hear the nurseries being loud. Let them hear us being loud. All right? And let's worship. You guys stay seated. We'll pray. uh, And we'll we'll stand when we sing. Lord, thank you for your goodness towards us. Thank you for the book of James sharpening us, drawing us nearer to you. Uh, Thank you for a Savior who loves us and died for us and rose again. And even though we're not perfect, Lord, you are. And we have our hope in you, our Redeemer, our God, our Savior. As we pray, as we struggle, as we live life, Lord, just fill us with your Spirit. Comfort us by him, our Counselor, our Comforter, our Keeper. You've sealed us for the day of redemption. We'll give you glory in Christ's name.